So on the screen behind me, if you'll remember approximately a month ago, we gathered together to look at um, an overview of the doctrine of adoption. And so I'd like to begin uh, just reading this relatively short section of the 1689 Confession to orient our minds toward the track that we find in the Word of God on this very important teaching on the doctrine of adoption. So if you'll follow with me. The 1689, chapter 12 of Adoption. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed uh, in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which we are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Having his name put upon them, receive the spirit of adoption, have access to the throne of grace with boldness, are enabled to cry, Abba, Father, are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation." So my task this evening is going to, um, I want to give you something of just an introduction of where we've been uh, in this study and then um, to look at those benefits which, uh, which come to us as the result of our adoption in Jesus Christ to God the Father. So if you turn in your copy of the scriptures with me to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, we'll all begin reading at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins, of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We have returned to verse 5 in this passage, specifically our adoption as sons of God through the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Previously, we considered the meaning of adoption used here. It is nothing less than God breaking off our ties with the devil of any claims that he may have had on us and places us into his family as his sons and daughters. Adoption is a legal act. It is in God's civil court. Adoption follows faith in Christ. As you'll recall from John chapter 1, beginning at verse 12, 
The Apostle John writes, But to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so from our text in Ephesians, it is God the Father who authors our adoption, having planned it from eternity past. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the divine agent, the old, our older brother, secures our adoption through his saving work on the cross, uniting us to himself, which is intimately tied to the, the work of adoption, that act. The Holy Spirit testifies to us of our adoption and comes into us and enables us to cry, Abba, Father. As we see in Romans 8.14, he also seals us for the day of redemption when our adoption will be made fully known. And so think of it with me. Every time you or I bow in prayer, like the Lord Jesus, we call God our Father. We are reminded that Father is the Christian name for God. And so what an unspeakable privilege that we have, as Packer writes, the revelation to the believer that God is his Father is, in a sense, a climax to the Bible. And so this evening, we will do a deep dive, as it were, into the blessings that come to us as favored children of God. Our duty, as you see, comes directly from chapter 12 of the 6989 Confession, which is identical, of course, in the Westminster Confession found in the back of the red hymnal. You need to refer to that. And so picture with me, uh, when I look back, roughly 10% of the students that I taught in my previous job were adopted children, and not all of them were adopted in infancy. And so you can imagine coming in to that adoptive family as a somewhat older child, really wondering, what is this going to be like? Will I, will I have a seat at the table? Will there be a bed that I can call my own? Will I be accepted? Will I really be loved? Will I be listened to in this new, new family of mine? You and I as Christians, we have something of an adjustment that we need to make as we've believed in Jesus Christ as we embrace the gospel, as it's revealed to us, and we take on these new privileges that we're going to learn about this evening, as well as those responsibilities of being members of God's household, there's going to be uh, a, a reorientation to how we look at life. And so I hope that as we go through this outline rather quickly, there's a lot to cover, hopefully this will give us uh, something of a roadmap on how that transition to living in the household of God, being part of his family, should look and feel like for each of us. And so if you refer with me to your handout, Roman numeral one, first we're received into the family of God. Uh, letter under that, the, the uh, 1689 uses the phrase that we are taken into the number. And so from chapter 12 of the Confession on Adoption, the framers list the benefits of our adoption by God. Those who are justified by faith are taken into the number. Now, in the context of the confession, the number refers to the specific individuals whom God predestined for salvation. 
They are effectually called by God the Father in the gospel, and they place their trust in Christ alone for salvation, and they are incorporated into the church, Christ's bride. The number of the elect is so certain and definite that it cannot be increased or diminished. As we read in Galatians 3, For in Christ Jesus you are sons of God through faith. So our adoption actually occurs upon our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, under B, we are members of God's household. We are members of God's household. The Greek word behind this is oikios. You remember, you've probably heard of a Greek yogurt that's similar in its name. Uh, It means of being of one's family uh, that we find used uh, in several passages, not the least of them, 1 Timothy 5.8. In a familiar passage, if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 2, just over one chapter from where you are, Paul is going to trace out for us um, our spiritual journey from being children of wrath, dominated by evil powers, living out fleshly and darkened lives, being separated from God, sons of disobedience, Paul calls us. And we were. But by the grace of God, we were made alive in Christ through faith. Verse 8 and 9. As we already established our adoption as sons and daughters of God, though determined prior to creation, actually occurs when we trust in Christ. Not prior to faith. In verse 12, Paul reminds us that we were previously were separated from the commonwealth of Israel, aliens to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And then that big word, but God. Those two words, but God. We were brought near by the blood of Christ. We were reconciled, both Jew and Gentile, into one body through Christ. Look at verse 19 with me. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are in God's household. Spurgeon describes that as being a new place for you to live. You are of God's household. Where Paul urges us in Galatians 10. Uh, sorry, Galatians 6, verse 10, where Paul urges Christians to do good to all, especially among God's family. If you're to look at 1 Timothy 5 and verse 8, Paul reminds believers of their duty to care for those of their own natural families, those in their own households. And so we can therefore say that like caring for our own natural families, being privileged to having a family, of receiving their care, their provision, their comfort. Uh, In a similar way, we are cared for by our Heavenly Father, and we are to extend His care to others in God's family. In other words, our care of our families mirrors the care that God has for those in His household. And so my question uh, for you now is, have you heeded Yahweh's gracious invitation that you heard from in Isaiah 55 this morning? 
Have you trusted in Christ for salvation and turned from your sins? And so if that, if that is so, you have the assurance of being in that number of which we read here. You are, being, you are of the household of God, of the household of faith. Praise God. That being established, what does being a child of God really mean for us as believers in Jesus Christ? So we've looked at the fact that we're received into the family of God. On to Roman numeral two, we're privileged as children of God. There are privileges that come to you and me as believers in Jesus Christ. The first of which I have here is that we bear God's name. We bear God's name. Well, what does that mean that we bear God's name? It simply means that we belong to God. It speaks of ownership, of uh, Spurgeon would say proprietorship, of possession. We belong to God forever. He himself has marked us out to be his very own cherished ones in Christ. We are his people and he is our God. And so when you look in the mirror, you can say to that person, I belong to God. I am not my own. I belong to Christ. As, as Thomas Boston has written, our old name is forever laid aside and we rightly take Christ's name upon us. Think of Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, where the Lord Jesus says, And the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He shall never go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down for my God out of heaven and my own new name. And so we bear God's name as those that believe in Jesus Christ. But there's more. We also read the spirit of adoption as we learned from Romans chapter 8 recently beginning at verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons by, which, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so God's spirit is given to us to dwell in us. He himself ratifies our adoption. He can never lie, but only testifies to the truth that we have been adopted by God and are united to Christ by faith. Our sonship is immutable and confirms our title to all the promises, irreversibly so. We are enabled by the Spirit to pray like Jesus did, calling God Father. And so we can see that we bear God's name. We have the Spirit of adoption. We also have under C, we have access to the throne of grace with boldness. If you would flip back, if you're in Romans, to chapter 5 and look at the first two verses to remind us of this privilege. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, I'd like you to focus on. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so what you see there is that that access we have is in the perfect tense. And so it began when we first trusted in Christ, and it continues on forever into the future. From Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18. For through him, that is through Christ, 
We both Jew and Gentile alike have access in one spirit to the Father. And again, that's present tense. So it is ongoing. It is a present reality. Previously, any access we might have had to God in prayer was blocked because of our sin nature, fallen in Adam, and our actual rebel lifestyle as well. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son through and through his atoning work on the cross, his perfect humanity and sinless life gave himself as the Lamb of God so that we might be reconciled, be made friends of God. And that access is not through some ritual system of animal sacrifice, but it is access in one spirit to the Father. It is a spiritual access. Now, the Easter season has come and gone, but I'd like you to reflect upon what we find, one of those realities of that, of that crucifixion of Christ. In Matthew 27, verse 51, following Jesus' immediate death on the cross, we read, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split. I want you to think with me for a moment what that curtain represented. In a word, it was separation. The great reality of our sinful nature and our sinful bent on our side and the absolute holiness of God on the other. Only the high priest, as you know, could pass through to the other side and only with blood from a perfect sacrifice. And that only once a year to atone for the sins of the people. And yet in his flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ removed that curtain, that separation. And so when Christ died, that curtain was once for all removed. That event marked then how we view the cross of Christ. And that's exactly how the writer to the Hebrews has it in Hebrews 10 and verse 19. uh, Beginning there. Therefore, brothers... In Hebrews ten nineteen, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And once we have, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, and with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water and so the writer to the hebrews leads us to conclude that the way to god is now open yet only through christ and now we can draw near now we can enter the holy of holies into god's presence we can each and together approach god through christ with a true heart in full assurance The covenant meal that we celebrate this evening commemorates and celebrates that access. So you can see that we have, we bear God's name. We have the spirit of adoption. We have access to the throne of grace with boldness, we see. We're also enabled under part D, we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. As we read from Galatians 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts where we cry, Abba, Father. And as we said previously, that word Abba coming over from the Aramaic would have shocked those New Testament readers and those that heard the Lord Jesus as well, where we can address God as our father. 
Luther has written, this is but a little word, Abba, and yet it comprehends all things. The mouth speaks not, but the affection of the heart speaks after this manner. Although I may be oppressed with anguish and terror on every side and seem to be forsaken and utterly cast away from your presence, yet I am your child and you are my father for Christ's sake. I am a beloved because of the beloved. And so we can see that we have access in, in God's presence and we are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. And let's move on then, as we've looked at the privileges that we have as children of God, we want to look at the care that we receive as children of God, as the redeemed of God under Roman numeral three. First, the framers note that we are pitied by God. Now, immediately, you're probably thinking of Psalm 103, verse 13. We are pitied by God. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Like Jacob in Genesis 33, if you remember, when Esau invited Jacob and his company to go ahead before them as a guard as they went into Canaan, Jacob responded to his brother in verse 13. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that their nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord to say here. Our heavenly Father is not one who will drive us from one duty to the next as one drives cattle because he will bear patiently with us so that not the slowest child is left behind uh, and, uh, and brought to discouragement because of the hardness of the way. Well, why is that? Well, verse 14 in Psalm 103 explains why. Because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. God has measured our strength and will not challenge our spirit more than we are able to bear. And so we are pitied by God. He knows all about us, our strengths, our weakness, where we would be given in to despair and discouragement and temptation the easiest. We read, and in, in, in this is well under part B, that we are protected by God. Knowing us fully, we are protected by God. From Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence, and his children will have a refuge. Or Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. God is our refuge and strength. A very help, a very present help in trouble. And so in times of discouragement and challenge, Luther could call upon his fellow reformer, Philip Melanchthon, and say, come, Philip, let's sing the 46th Psalm. And as you know, this is the basis of of Luther's great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a paraphrase of that psalm. It is said, and the words of this are actually inscribed on the base of Luther's tomb. It is said to be the greatest hymn of the greatest man in the greatest period in German history. And so we are protected by our great God. He is our fortress. But more than that, 
if you'll move on to part C, we are provided for by God. With David, we can see in Psalm 34, verse 10, that we are provided for by God. Psalm 34, verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Or a well-known passage in Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will not he much more clothe you, O you of little faith? And therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need all. Verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We also remember Peter's exhortation in 1 Peter 5, verse 6, where he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time he may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. We are cared for and provided for by God. Think as well of Matthew chapter 7, where the Lord Jesus teaches us about prayer, beginning at verse 9. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who seek him? Most certainly of all, the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as we are instructed by Paul in 1 Timothy 5.8 that fathers are to provide for their own household, otherwise he is denied the faith, would our Heavenly Father care any less for his own than the weakest saint meeting this minimum standard. God will certainly provide for you, Christian. And so mark that down. God will provide for you. And yet in our outline, we move on. We also see as well that we are chastened by God uh, as his children. A well-known passage in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 5. Here we are chastened by God and his children. Where the writer to the Hebrews writes... And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And he's quoting from Proverbs here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so if you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. And so for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so note the balance in the scripture. Our wise father will not have a brat running about his house, leaving trouble and mischief in his wake. 
in love. He will chasten and train out of us every peevish spirit, every sinful pattern, and do whatever is needed to further conform us to the image of his son, which is the purpose of a redemption. And so while God punishes his enemies, he chastens his children. Spurgeon writes, God is no foolish father. If he adopts a child, he adopts it so that he may be a kind and wise father. And though he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men for naught, though when he stru- his strokes are felt, his strokes are fewer than our crimes and lighter than our guilt. And yet at the same time, he never spares the rod. He knows he would ruin his children if he did. And therefore, sometimes he lays it on with no sparing hand and makes them cry out and groan while they think that he has turned to be their enemy. And so God is going to chasten his children whom he loves, um, the one for whom he sent his son to die. And he will keep them in the way that is to that celestial city. And under this section as well, we can see that we are received into the family of God. We receive privileges as children of God. We are cared for as by a loving uh, and yet principled father. In Roman normal 4, we are preserved by the power of God. We are preserved by the power of God. And under that, we are never cast off. We can never be cast off. From Isaiah 54, verse 8. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Or well known to us as well, Lamentations three thirty one. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast, his hesed love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. And so, dear Christian, your heavenly father would not send his only begotten son into the world for you to believe on him, only to, be, only to cast you away in the end. His love is everlasting as his compassion, as we see in Lamentations. And so we are cast off, but more we are eternally secure. As we read from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we are eternally secure in him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of a glory of to the praise of his glory. And Peter as well is going to allude to this blessing as well in 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded, are being kept through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And so through faith, though our faith will be tested in this life and experiencing a variety of trials, as Peter will go on to describe, 
and along with our persecutions, God preserves every adopted son and daughter, which results in praise and glory to God at Christ's return. So God himself stands watch over your soul. No one will snatch you from his powerful hand, nor from the Lord Jesus. We are not God's child on Tuesday, and then on Thursday, we're children of the devil again. No. Though we sin and are chastened, God will never cast us off. But also, Roman numeral 5, we are graced with the promises of God. We can see that we're received, we're privileged, we're cared for, and we are preserved, but we are graced with promises. We are heirs of eternal salvation that you see under there, heirs of eternal salvation. From Hebrews 9, verse 15, Therefore Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Or a chapter ahead in Hebrews 10, verse 36, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has been promised. We are not to despair on the road to the celestial city, uh, but we are to endure what hardships God has placed along our path. For our, in, our entrance into the city of God is one as children of the great king. And don't think that you're abandoned by God in the dungeon of giant, of giant despair. Recall, like Christian, the promises of God that will unlock that door that is in the castle of giant despair. And so we are heirs of eternal salvation. We have an inheritance that is laid up for us in heaven. And you'll remember from Pilgrim's Progress, that was a matter of of comfort and delight for, for Christian on his way to the celestial city. So we are heirs of salvation, but more under B, we are possessors of a storehouse of promises. Peter writes about this in 2 Peter 1, beginning at verse 3. We are possessors of a storehouse of promises. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, the Apostle Paul refers to this storehouse as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, where he writes, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, that is, in Christ. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And so Paul is expressing his confidence in God fulfilling all of his promises to his children. They are certain to come to pass, and nothing in heaven or earth can prevent that from taking place. We have, as one writer puts it, a storehouse of blessings and a chest of goodwill and the promises of God. God is not a man that he should lie, as we read in Numbers 23. And therefore, we ought to store up in our minds God's promises in times of health, for days of sickness, and in times of peace for future trials. Consider Spurgeon's um, Faith checkbook, checkbook. If you've ever seen that devotional, it's a wonderful collection of devotionals that focus upon all the promises of God. Or at, least, at the very least, make a point of noting God's promises uh, in your regular reading of the scriptures. 
and I'll, and I'll throw out one. Perhaps you're one this evening who's struggling with, God, what do you want me to do with this or that particular situation? Well, we need look no further than James 1, verse 5, right? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So you have promised wisdom that you must ask for. And so we are possessors of a storehouse of promises that we can only allude to at this point. But now we need to move on finally to Roman numeral 6. What are the duties, or at least some of the duties, of God's adopted children? As we've looked at um, being received into the family of God, receiving privileges in that household of God, being cared for, being preserved. What are the duties of God's adopted children? First here is to often reflect upon our new identity. And we need to look no further than 1 John 3, verse 1, where the Apostle John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, the inestimable privilege of being called children of God. And so we are, John writes. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. And so learn from the Apostle John the manner with which the Father loves us. But also note how that love comes to us. It is a love that is given. It is graciously given to us. You and I are children of God, not by performing some service to God, or giving to the church so as to have God in our debt. No, far from it. Our so-called good works could never earn such a privilege. It is by the grace of God in Christ alone. And so in times of trial and discouragement, may these realities come home to comfort and to keep you in the way. So are you like that somewhat older, somewhat nervous adopted child in the household of God. Where do I sit? Is this seat, Mike? Is it safe to sit here at the table? Is there a place at the table for me? Oh, yes. Is there a place where I can sleep that I can call my own? Am I going to be listened to? Am I going to be loved? Do I really belong here? Will I be supported in my times of trouble, of good health and in bad? May these lessons come home to you and to me as we reflect often upon our tremendous unspeakable privilege as being adopted children of God. What an honor. What an honor to be adopted children of God. But secondly, under this, to love all true people of God. Two chapters later, John writes, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commands. If we love God, then that's upon us to show that love in all those that name the name of Christ and are in that family with us. Don't reflect upon past injuries, whether real or conjured up in your mind, presumed. Find some practical outlet for your love for those who share in the same inheritance is you. Thirdly, our duty would be to reject the ways of the world. If you flip back to chapter 2 of John's epistle, 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love 
of the Father is not in him. What a sobering thought. To have been received as as God's adopted child through Jesus Christ by grace alone and and then to deny that love by going back to the world. Keep the love of the Father ever before your heart and mind and you'll not trade it for the idols this world sets before your eyes. Would you, like Lot's wife, look back with longing to Sodom Would you trade away your assurance for this present world like Demas did and suffer the shipwreck of your soul? But also as well and under D, often go to your father in prayer. Often go to your father in prayer. And I have to confess, this is a neglected duty and honor that um, I fall far short of what I'm speaking. We are children of God, not servants under the law. That little prayer, Abba, Father, should set us on our way in our private devotions and in our corporate times of prayer, whether on Wednesday or on the Lord's Day as well, as God's gathered household. In the storms of life, God is a very present help in trouble, Psalm 41. Or 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. And then finally here, rejoice in our hope of heaven with God. Rejoice in our hope of heaven with God. Going back to that same passage in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Behold, sorry, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him, purifies himself as he is pure. And so in closing, while we have trusted in Christ, we who have, those of us who have trusted in Christ enjoy such privileges and receive so much care from God as his children, I'm sobered to think of how none of these benefits we've outlined this evening come to those who don't know Christ. My unbelieving friend, consider all you have to gain by trusting Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and turning away from those sins to God, as we heard this morning. Never to be alone, never to be shut out, never to be cast away and disregarded, chastened but not destroyed, loved and restored to the God who made you to fulfill God's purpose for which he made you. God comes to you in the gospel of his son with terms of peace, as we plainly heard from Isaiah 55 this morning. There is a day coming yet unknown, yet certain, when he will wrap up this universe and judge every man, every woman, every boy, every girl for their works, according to their works. How much better for you to come to Christ today to be received by God than to be cast into the outer darkness for all eternity. May you pray for grace to choose rightly today. And I close with that promise that we began with from John 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, in Jesus' name, he gave the right, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, 
nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. Well, let's pray. Father, as we've surveyed a number of themes that are really throughout your scriptures, we pray that you would uh, intensify our focus as we find these themes throughout your word, as they're fulfilled, certainly in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to Help us to once again take advantage of our tremendous privilege that we have in calling you our Father, being adopted into your family through Christ. We pray all these things, these things in his name. Amen.